These days, uh, beloved listeners, your face can be your passport, it can unlock your phone, it's quick, it's easy, and seems secure. But is there something else going on? Could the huge advances in facial recognition technology doom privacy? To tell us more, we welcome New York Times technology reporter Kashmir Hill. Kashmir's new book, Is Your Face Belongs to Us, the secretive startup dismantling your privacy. Kashmir, welcome to our little wireless program. Introduce me to the world of facial recognition technology, if you please. What what can it do? Sure. So facial recognition technology, I think a lot of people use it now. You know, a lot of people use it to open their phone, um, sometimes at the airport or as you're crossing the border. But what has been kind of happening in the background is that there are companies that have scraped the internet of of billions of photos. Um, I focus in the book on a company called Clearview AI, started actually by uh, an Australian uh, named Juan Tan Tat. They have 30 billion faces in their database. And what they can do is you take a photo of somebody, upload it to their app, and it finds all the other places where their face appears on the internet. So it tells you that person's name, you know, shows you their social media profiles, maybe even reveals photos of them that they didn't even know were on the internet. What happens when you uh, when your own image was run through the system? Did it surprise you to see how much was revealed, Kashmir? It was. It was very surprising. I mean, there were photos I knew about, things I had put out on the internet, my headshot, uh, you know, very quickly led to my name. But there are also, you know, surprising results. Me at a concert, you know, in the background of someone else's photo. Uh, me, I remember one uh, where I was walking down a sidewalk uh, and I didn't realize it was me at first until I recognized the coat I was wearing. There were photos of me at a public event with a source of mine I didn't realize was on the internet. I mean, it was a kind of time machine showing different places I've been at different moments in time and just revealing a lot of information about me. Uh, A tool like this just dramatically changes your ability to kind of be anonymous in the world. So Kashmir hypothesizer, a creepy stalker could take a a photo of someone walking down the street or having a drink in a bar and then uh, run it through the facial recognition and learn, well, an incredible amount. Yes, that is now possible. Clearview AI limits their tool to use by police and law enforcement officials. But there are other companies now that have followed in their footsteps and they have public databases that that anyone can use, you know, some that are free, some that require a subscription. But yes, it's already happening. For the book, I, I talked to a man who actually came to me. He confessed how he was using the tool because he wanted lawmakers to know about it. He wanted them to change the law so he wouldn't have access to it. 
but he used one of these public tools to find out the real identities of women that he saw in in porn films. He wanted to know their real names. Uh, he would find their high school photos. And he was using it in this really deeply creepy way. And he said, you know, I'm not acting on this. I'm just a digital peeping Tom. But you could imagine how people, how somebody could do something very nefarious with that information. You open your book with an intriguing account of uh, when you received a tip-off about a startup called, yes, uh, Clearview. Tell us. So I heard about Clearview um, in the fall of 2019. I, I heard about them from a tipster who was doing public records requests to law enforcement agencies around the U.S. wanting to know, you know, which technologies they were using, how much they were paying for it. And Clearview AI, no one knew about them at the time. They were keeping what they were doing a secret. But what they had created was like nothing police had used before. They had created a database with billions of photos, you know, scraped from the public web, scraped from social media sites. They created that database without anyone's consent. You know, they hadn't asked for permission to put people in the database. And they said that the the app worked to identify people with something like 98.6% accuracy. And they were secretly selling it to law enforcement. And, you know, no one knew about them. And when I approached the company to talk to them, they refused to talk to me. They had really hidden who was behind the company, even though they are exposing so much about us, they were staying in the shadows. And so I actually found police officers who'd use the app and they were, they, they sang its praises. They said it worked incredibly well, like nothing they'd used before. Um, but the company, uh, a couple of the officers volunteered to demonstrate the app for me. And so I sent them my photos so they could show me the results. And every time I did that, the officer would stop talking to me. And I would find out that Clearview AI had actually put an alert on my own face. And anytime an officer uploaded my face, they were reaching out to the officer and telling them, don't talk to her. Now, I'd like like you to tell me a little more about this uh, Australian you mentioned. And uh, let me say that I fear, I feel not so much a thrill of pride as a chill of panic. Tell me about this fellow. So Juan Tontat, um, he he grew up in Melbourne and Canberra, or Melbourne, I guess I should say, and Canberra, was always really obsessed with computers from a really young age. And um, at 19 years old, he dropped out of college. He said he was he was kind of bored with the computer science major. He'd really kind of taught himself to code at a young age. And he moved to San Francisco at 19 years old, kind of chasing the tech dream. And he spent about a decade in San Francisco, you know, trying to make the next big app and 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 failing. I mean, he made quizzes for Facebook and iPhone games and an app called Trump Hair that would put the uh, ex-president's hair on the heads of people in a photo. <laughs> he, <laughs> you know, he didn't have an incredible incredible resume. And yet he moved to New York and eventually created this astounding app. I learned from you that the 10 years he spent hanging out in uh, Silicon Valley was mainly with left-leaning liberals. Yeah, it was funny. He said when he first moved to San Francisco, 
he was uncomfortable at first with, with the culture there. It's very liberal, uh, gender bending. He said, I'd never heard of burrito before. He, he said he was getting to know this, this new culture and he ended up, you know, growing his hair out long. He hung out with artists and musicians and he was really with running with a kind of liberal crowd. But at some point he had a, a very dramatic change and he moved to the right. He later told me he was radicalized by the internet, but he he started, you know, wearing MAGA hats and he was a supporter of Trump. And he ended up moving to New York and falling in with some very conservative characters. And and this is the kind of environment from which Clearview AI came. What role in all of this does uh does Peter Thiel, uh, the PayPal founder, play? So Juan Tantat um, wound up attending a big political convention, um, the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio, when Trump was the candidate. And Peter Thiel was a supporter of Trump. He was speaking at the convention and Juan Tantat met him there for the first time. And then, you know, a year later, um, when he was looking for a funder for this facial recognition app he was creating, he reached out to Teal and Teal wound up being his very first investor. He gave him $200,000 um, to work on what would become Clearview AI. It would not exist probably without Peter Teal's money. There's another name that I'd like you to talk to briefly, and that's Chuck Johnson. So Chuck Johnson or Charles Johnson is it's kind of very well known on the internet for trolling liberals. Uh, kind of a conservative provocateur has run some conservative-leaning investigative news sites, and he was a person that Juan Tantat became very friendly with. They actually went to Cleveland together. Uh, Charles Johnson says that he is the person who introduced um, Juan Tantat to Peter Thiel, and he also introduced Juan Tantat to his co-founder, Richard Schwartz, another um, person from the conservative scene. He used to work for Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor of New York. And Johnson told me in the early days of Clearview AI, they weren't just thinking about a, a an app that could recognize someone's face. They were really thinking about these kind of old ideas from physiognomy, the idea that facial features could reveal who you are, you know, whether you're likely to be a criminal or how intelligent you might be. Be Kashmir, that reminds me of the pseudoscience of phrenology. Exactly. It comes from Victorian age thinkers um, who did believe that, you know, who we are is written on our face. And so, yeah, at the beginning, the company was thinking about, can we make an app that is able to evaluate a person just based on their facial features? You know, how thin their eyebrows are, how thick their jaw is. Um, eventually, they gave that up. Wonton Tat now says, you know, I don't believe in that anymore. And they moved in the direction of just identifying somebody and finding all the photos of them that exist on the internet. Was Clearview's technology, or, or is Clearview's technology, does it do any good? So when Clearview, when Juan Tantat and this team first created Clearview AI, they had a product in search of a customer. And at first they were, you know, going to hotels, to grocery stores, uh, to real estate buildings, and just saying, here, you know, 
we've built this app. Like, do you want to buy it? Will you pay for it? But eventually they got introduced to the New York Police Department or the NYPD. And the officers there really loved it. They said it was a great crime fighting tool. You know, it was very useful for for figuring out who criminal suspects might be. And they told other law enforcement agencies about it. And it really started spreading like wildfire, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And Juan Tantat is really proud of this. He says that this is the best use of facial recognition technology. The way he put it in my first interview with him is, you know, our technology is getting used to find and arrest pedophiles instead of being used by them. The FBI take an interest? The FBI does have a contract with Clearview AI. So does the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, The U.S. Air Force has given them funding to develop augmented reality glasses that would have this this facial recognition ability in them. So, yes, they are very, you know, widely used in in the U.S. They have faced a lot of pushback outside of the U.S. I'm talking to uh, Kashmir Hill. Her book is called Your Face Belongs to Us. You were talking about their claims of accuracy in, you know, the 98 point something percent, which reminds me of DNA. So are there limitations? Are mistakes made? Yeah, this this technology has gotten very powerful, particularly in the last decade. But it still does make mistakes. You know, sometimes it's looking in a database where the person isn't there. Um, It does sometimes surface a doppelganger. Uh, I've written about a handful of people in the U.S. that have been wrongfully arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. And it's very devastating when this happens. You know, uh, the most recent incident was a woman who was eight months pregnant in Detroit, Michigan, and she was arrested for carjacking and robbery. Uh, And she, you know, gestured to her stomach and said, do I look like I could carjack someone? But they ended up (laughs) taking her, they took her to jail and they charged her. She had to hire a lawyer and fight the case, even though the crime had been committed a month earlier by a woman who was not visibly pregnant. A man who was identified using Clearview AI spent a week in jail uh, for a crime committed in a state he had never been to. Um, So this this can this can go wrong. And that's that's why there really should be strict rules around how it's used if we are going to have police. Isn't there an argument that the system is capable or or has an inbuilt tendency to bigotry? In other words, it uh, it tends to make mistakes involving black people. Bias has been a problem for a very long time with facial recognition technology. And, you know, part of it is that the people who were building it were often white men and they were making sure that it worked best on them. They were training it with photos of themselves and people who look like them. One of the ways of fixing this problem is to train the AI on more diverse faces. And so a lot of the facial recognition vendors have done that. And they now say that the technology is very accurate, that it works on different groups of people. Yet the the handful of people that we know of who have been wrongfully arrested here in the U.S., they have all been black. And so, you and know, that, whether... That was the whether, case with the pregnant Porsche. 
Yes, yes. Portia is a black woman. And so, you know, even if you kind of fix the technology, I think you'll still see that it is used on some populations more than others. We're always going to have, you know, they say William Gibson, the great science fiction author, says the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. It's the same thing with surveillance. Surveillance is not evenly distributed either. And I think some people will be more subject to facial recognition and these kinds of searches than other people. Kashmir, you saw facial recognition in action on a visit you made to a law enforcement unit in Florida. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I went down to Miami, Florida, and I spent three days in their real-time crime center. And I got to see all these different surveillance technologies they use. Shot spotter that tells you, you know, when a gunshot was likely fired, um, uh, automated uh, license plate scanners, and then Clearview AI. Um, And it actually wasn't that helpful during the time that I was there because the surveillance cameras that Miami had throughout the city, the vast majority of them, or or at least the ones where crimes kept happening, were very grainy. And so the surveillance stills just, um, they weren't high resolution images. They're not like the photos we take on our smartphones. And so when they would try to run the face through Clearview system, it, it just wouldn't have any any hits. It just it wasn't it wasn't reliable. And um, and so this was this was interesting to me because in my mind, you know, uh, it would work you know much better. But when you see it happening, there are all these problems. You know, it, these images aren't perfect. Surveillance cameras are often are often getting these really grainy images. And so you can see why it is that this goes wrong. If you give a facial recognition system a bad photo, you're going to get bad results. I remember during the the pro-democracy riots in Hong Kong that uh, facial recognition technology became a major issue and you'd see the protesters trying doing their best to cover their face. It's very big in China itself, isn't it? It is very big in China. I I think China is farther in kind of this dystopian future than the rest of the world is. And they do have facial recognition systems kind of running on a lot of surveillance cameras in real time. Again, initially, you know, installed for safety and security reasons. But you often see this happen when you see the when once you have the infrastructure built you get surveillance creep where you realize, oh, there's these other purposes that it's useful to have facial recognition technology for. You can use it to identify protesters. You can use it to automatically ticket jaywalkers, which is happening in some Chinese cities. Um, It's been used to name and publicly shame people who wear pajamas in public. Uh, There's even a, a restroom in Beijing where they were using facial recognition technology to control how much toilet paper people would get because they want to deter to deter uh toilet paper thieves. And so I think that's the concern, right? I'm that sorry. once you start I'm installing sorry, it. That is <laughs> such an extraordinary notion. Uh it is. And um and I think that's just the worry with this kind of technology. It is very simple to kind of start rolling it out more widely <laughs> and, and start using it for mind in mind-boggling ways. You mentioned that it can be used to find missing people. And in every country, vast numbers of people do go missing. This is surely an area where it could be a force for good. 
It could be. Um, I mean, the the activists I talk to say the worry is once you put the system in place, it will be used for other purposes. So it won't just be used to find missing people. It will be used to, you know, track political opponents, to suppress dissent, um, to monitor people in ways that they wouldn't want to be monitored. And I think I think that's the worry. I mean, with any technology, it's not just about trusting that the technology works. It's about trusting the people who are using it. Now, let's talk about doppelgangers. Recently, of course, there were all sorts of uh, conspiracy theories that uh, Putin wasn't a well boy and that uh, a body double was appearing for him. Would would, uh, the technology tell the difference between the original and a facsimile thereof? I mean, it depends on how close the face is. Uh, facial recognition systems do struggle with twins. Um, and I actually heard about this from, there was a, 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 there's an event venue here called Madison Square Garden. They are a big sports venue and have a lot of bands and musical performances, big concerts. And the owner of Madison Square Garden installed facial recognition uh, originally to address security threats, but in the last year, he started using it against his enemies. He didn't want lawyers who worked for firms who had sued him to be able to come to shows at his venue anymore. And so uh, the company scraped all of these lawyers' photos from their firm's website and put them on this ban list. And so one of them told me uh, who was on the ban list and was not able to go to the uh, fish shows. It was a band he really liked. <laughs> and his twin would also get stopped uh, and turned away until he showed his ID and proved he wasn't him. So, so yeah, so if you have a bad twin, uh, you're in trouble in this future world. Uh, you know, the systems do sometimes get confused by doppelgangers. I mean, we have seen people arrested because they looked like someone else. Um, the way the facial recognition systems work, in the movies, I think you just put a photo in and it tells you who the person is. But in reality, the way it works is you get a list of, of faces that the system thinks is a match. And so you will certainly see doppelgangers um, we, we turn were, up there from time we to time. We were joking about phrenology earlier, but uh, you take the idea that the face conveys information way back to Aristotle, for heaven's sake. Yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting to me because I mean just seeing how far back this this idea goes that the face is the soul, that the face reveals who we are. Um and I, I mean I think most people have discredited this idea, right? That you can tell who someone is just from their facial features. And yet we are seeing modern engineers and computer science scientists keep trying to do this, you know, take AI. And there was a team in China that fed an AI system, a bunch of photos of criminals. And then they, they, they said that they had taught it to recognize what a criminal looked like. Um, and we've seen a number of those kinds of papers that say they can identify, uh, you know, whether a person is gay or not, um, how intelligent a person is. And these studies have been discredited. There are many flaws. I think a lot of these systems are very good at identifying a mugshot photo, you know, as opposed to a criminal face. Um, and yet we, we, we keep seeing them try to uh, kind of exhume these old ideas. When I think of Facebook and Google, I don't usually think of uh, 
you know, highly moral enterprises, but they had this sort of technology, but didn't release it. Yeah, that was really, that was honestly surprising to me because I don't think of Facebook and Google as particularly conservative when it comes to new and novel and sometimes frightening uses of data. But for them, facial recognition technology was a step too far. They developed Clearview AI-like technology internally, and they did decide to hold it back. Um, they said because they were they were worried about how it could be abused, how an evil dictator could use a superpower like this. And so they did sit on it. And so when Clearview AI came along, what they did you know, was not necessarily a technological breakthrough. It was an ethical breakthrough. They were willing to do what these other tech company, technology companies had not been willing to do. Any way of pushing back against this uh, potential dystopia? What about regulation? Regulation is very helpful. You know, um, Australia Australia's privacy regulator looked at Clearview AI and said that what the company had done was illegal, um, that it violated Australia's privacy laws, that you shouldn't be collecting people's information without their consent, personal information like this, and putting them in a database. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't have a law like that in the United States. And so um, Clearview AI is continuing to collect photos of people all the time. So they are probably still collecting photos of Australians. And they the company says that they are adding 75 million new images, you know, every day. Was uh, Clearview upset when you started writing your New York Times articles? So Clearview was not happy when I first looked into them. You know, they they were kind of went to some extreme lengths to discourage my reporting. But at some point, they decided to talk to me. And I talked to Juan Tontat many times working on this book. Um, and I think they just decided, you know, it was happening whether they wanted to or not. And they really wanted to tell their side of the story and why they think facial recognition technology is, you know, a force for good, particularly in the way that they are deploying it. Thanks very much, Kashmir. Kashmir Hill, an award-winning technology writer for the New York Times. Kashmir's new book, Is Your Face Belongs to Us, The Secretive Startup, Dismantling Your Privacy, published in Australia by Simon & Schuster. Thanks, Kashmir. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.